Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we feature Diane Ackerman, one of the writers part of the KPFA Speaker Series. Recorded at the Hillside Club in Berkeley on September 31st, 2009, Ms. Ackerman discusses her current book, Dawn Light Dancing with Cranes and Other Ways to Start the Day. We begin with an introduction by Bob Balduck. Diane Ackerman, apart from being really uniquely, deeply, consciously alive, she has some unique, specific distinctions. Her book, uh, Natural History of the Senses, inspired the five-part Nova miniseries, Mystery of the Senses, which she hosted. She's been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, a John Burroughs Nature Award, and the Levon Poetry Prize. Diane's new book is titled Dawn Light, Dancing with Cranes, and Other Ways to Start the Day. Please welcome Diane Ackerman. Thank you so much, Bob. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you here in this extraordinary club. Today I'm going to be talking um, about dawn light. At dawn, the world rises out of darkness, slowly, sense grain by grain, as if from sleep. Life becomes visible again. When it is dark, it seems to me as if I were dying, and I can't think anymore, Claude Monet once lamented. More light, Goethe begged from his deathbed. Dawn is the wellspring of more light, the origin of our first last days as we roll in space, over 6.684 billion of us in one global Petri dish, shot through with sunlight, in our cells, in our minds, in our myriad metaphors of rebirth, in all the extensions to our senses, that we create to enlighten our days and navigate our nights. Thanks to electricity, night doesn't last as long now, nor is it as dark as it used to be. So it's hard to imagine the terror of our ancestors waiting for daybreak. On starless nights, one can feel like a loose array of limbs and purpose and seem smaller than usual, limited to what one can touch. In the dark, it's hard to tell friend from foe. Night-roaming predators may stalk us. Reminded of all our delectable frailties, we become vulnerable as prey. What courage it must have taken our ancestors to lie down in darkness and become helpless, invisible, and delusional for eight hours. Graceful animals stole through the forest shadows by night, But few people were awake to see them in twilight or moonlight when creatures might well have burst forth, forbidding, distorted, maybe even ghoulish or magical. Small wonder we personalized the night with demons. Eventually, people were willing to sacrifice anything, wealth, power, even their children, to ransom the sun, immense with life, a one-eyed God who fed their crops, led their travels, chased the demons from their dark, rekindled their lives. Whatever else it is, dawn is always a rebirth, a fresh start, even if familiar routines and worries charge in, clamoring for attention. While waking, 
We veer between dreamy and lucid. The word lucid comes from the Latin lux, light. Crossing that threshold each morning, we step across worlds, half a mind turned inward, the other half growing aware. I'm still a little groggy, we say, the 18th century word for being drunk on rum. It's a time of epic uncertainty and vulnerability as we surface from disorienting dreams and the blindness of keeping eyes shut for many hours. As the eyelids rise to flickering light and the dimly visible, it's easy to forget where we are, even what we are. Then suddenly everything shines. Paths grow easier to see, food easier to spot, jobs easier to tackle with renewed vigor. In rising light, doors and bridges become eye-catching. The peninsulas of arms and legs lead to one another. We may use all our other senses in the dark, but to see, we need the sun spilling over the horizon, highlighting everything and pouring a thick yellow vitamin into our eyes. It's as survivors that we greet each day, though we're usually too hurried to savor the elemental in our lives, the reeling sun, the moon and stars, prophecy of clouds, ruckus of birdsong, moss brightly blooming, moon shadows and dew, omens of autumn and late summer, fizzy air before a storm, wind chime of leaves, fellowship of dawn and dusk. And yet we abide by forces so old we've lost the taste of their spell. Painting its own time zone, its own climate, dawn is a land of petrified forests and sleeping beauties when dry leaves, hardened by frozen dew, become ghost hands and deer slouch through the woods waiting for their food to defrost. Part of the great parentheses of our lives, dawn summons us to a world alive and death-defying when the deepest arcades of life and matter beckon. Then, as if a lamp were switched on in a dark room, nature grows crisply visible, including our own nature, our ghostly hands, and our fine sediment of days. Dawn light is full of appreciative meditations organized around the seasons, and the book explores science, world religion, art history, poetry, organic farming, etymology, beekeeping, um, beekeeping because my neighbor has 90,000 bees. <laughs> and um, this is not a neighbor down the road a piece, you know, a mile off or anything. This is a neighbor 15 feet away. <laughs> um, and so I've been enchanted watching the bees. Do any of you know about water-made bees? No, I didn't know. That's one of the just wonderful things that I learned in the process of uh, rising at dawn and learning about the world a little bit. And that's that um, there's a whole troop of water-made bees that come and scoop up water, little buckets full, and they take it back to the hive and throw it on the hive to cool the hive down. So we were visited constantly in the pool by all of these water-made bees scooping up, scooping up water, which was fascinating. And... Um, I put on what's called a Neil Armstrong suit, so you can picture it, a beekeeper's uniform, and got to be up close with the bees. Um, 
I like to think that I don't get spooked too easily, but having like bees clustered on the netting right in front of you gave me pause. You know, I had to, I didn't want to be there quite too long. But anyway, um, beekeeping is in there. I especially liked um, watching bees wake up. And I recommend that. It's a wonderful thing to do. Um, especially bumblebees, because they're nice and big, you know, and they have those furry sweaters on. And they can't fly if it's too cold. They can't use their flight muscles. So if they don't make it home to the hive, then they have to just sleep wherever they are. And you can go around and watch them in the morning if it's not 55 degrees or so. And when they wake up, they start to do a little hokey-pokey sort of thing, you know, and they just kind of get themselves going. Well, why did I start doing this? Several years ago, when my husband was hospitalized with weeks, for weeks with um, pneumonia that followed the stroke, I didn't know if, when, or how he'd recover. And life felt calamitously off balance, as if I were on deck in the midst of a chaotic storm. Long tentacles led into and out of him. His fever kept spiking. And there was nothing I could do but wait and wither. Most of all, I needed pockets of calm and continuity. And so I spent all day at the hospital with him, but I returned home at night for a fitful sleep. And then first thing each morning, I turned to the wonders of nature. For me, that's where worry takes a holiday and the earth feels solid underfoot. Even in cheerful times, but especially during periods of suffering, pain, or uncertainty, we need to find enriching ways to transcend. For me, that has always meant losing myself in nature, which doesn't have to include waking at dawn, of course. In my case, sometimes it's, it's included things as exotic as swimming with whales in Patagonia, but more often as ordinary as watching a grackle strutting on the curb the grackle whistling as if he were hailing a cab, or maybe as unexpected as seeing a wren nesting in the pants you washed and hung out on the line to dry. <laughs> happened to me. Plunging into such moments with curiosity and an open heart always refreshes my spirit, especially if I allow myself to play. I say allow because when someone you love is suffering, Play or any source of pleasure can feel like a betrayal. The play I'm talking about isn't really haha play. Um, it's a high focus way of observing something with so much clarity and aliveness that the rest of the world just disappears for a few moments. It means being fully present, really paying attention. In dawn light, there are certain historical people who appear throughout the book. And one of them is Claude Monet, because he really knew how to pay attention. On a chilly morning in 1892, Monet settled his easel beside an open window in a rented second-story room in Rouen and began painting the Gothic cathedral across the street, a soaring mountain of architecture that he fondly referred to as his cliff. He had just finished his Haystacks and Poplar series, in which he'd lavishly recorded the fugitive spell of dawn, noon, and dusk alighting on a field. By layering two-dimensional canvases with three-dimensional paints, 
he hoped to reveal a fourth dimension, time. The older I become, he wrote to his friend, the more I realize that I have to work really, really hard to reproduce what I'm after, the instantaneous. In the end, Monet painted 31 dreamlike visions of the cathedral in thickly applied pigments that trail the elusive migration of sunlight as it seeps into the stony recesses and floods the shadows, creating an effect like the thick spillage left by dripping candles. By adding the element of change over time, he imbued the series with the cinematic rhythm. Rising at 5 a.m. every day, Monet was a man of the dawn, and there were infinite dawns for him to capture, solidify in paint, and hang in the gallery of memory like souvenirs from neighboring countries, each with its own climate. Sixty vagabond dawns live in each minute, thirty ripening dawns in half an hour. Can one capture time fragments? Surviving the death of an adored son and a beloved wife, Monet must have known how impossible that was. Yet he painted as many as 14 canvases simultaneously in his rented rooms, recording the dynamic semblances of light. It was perceptions that he chronicled, the atmospherics of living rather than the reality of objects. As photons rain on stony edges, a cathedral changes in the mind seamlessly right up to that standstill when one's universe dies and one's conversation with the sun ends. But until then, there are only spells of being so fleeting it's nearly impossible to retrieve them, even with the impasto of memory. They simply vanish into the psyche's library of lost things. Once the brain notices something, we're primed to recognize it faster the next time, and even faster after that, until we really needn't look at it carefully again. The more you know something, the less you know it. And that sometimes also applies to people that you know. Visitors to a locale often see things the locals miss, especially if they're on holiday with the sole purpose of just looking, just noticing details and remembering. Babies, beginners, newcomers, artists, and mystics all have this in common, unjaded eyes. Maybe that's why artists so often feel like outsiders. In every sense, they are perpetual tourists. Our perceptions fly under the radar most of the time, unless an artist like Monet wakes us up and says, pay attention, let me show you the transient beauty of absolutely any moment. Here is a wave. This is the rain. The natural world shimmers with mysteries and sensory delights, which though we're rarely aware of them, press firmly and leave indelible traces on our lives. Whenever we pause to sense them, we become wonderstruck and experience a richly satisfying frame of mind that, for lack of a better word, we sometimes call joy. There's nothing like the rapture of losing yourself and blending with nature until you can consider the possibility that your molecules might once have been employed elsewhere, in a squirrel or a minstrel or a tree or slime mold or maybe an owl. It's a humbling thought. We value our own subjective reality above that of any other organism. If we didn't, perhaps we'd feel more kinship with other life forms, even the lowliest.
You're listening to Cover to Cover Open Book, featuring author Diane Ackerman. In Dawn Light, I often try to see the world from the perspective of another life form, based on what we know about that creature's behavior and how its senses work, what we know about the umwelt of the animal. And I'll give you an example. I'm a great fan of owls. I think this started after I read the Harry Potter books (laughs) and discovered that you could have your own personal owl who delivered mail for you. So I have a personal owl named Percy, and I have a friend who has um, an owl. He says it's a Jewish owl named Fievel, (laughs) and his owl goes, whoo, who already, who, you know. (laughs) And sometimes uh, Fievel and Percy will email owlish things to one another, you know, and they'll talk about whether they've had owl aid or things like that. Um, But anyway... Learning about owls, I really loved just taking off myself as if it were a second sweater, you know, a little too warm, wrapping it up, setting it down on the bank, and becoming an owl. I do that at length, but here's a little passage from it. I would be an owl if I could, a creature named after its sound. So I would be a howl if I could. Sweet cheat of the night who slices open the air with soft serrated wings so silently it doesn't warn dozy prey. How far can I see? An owl could read the bottom line on an eye chart from a mile off or hear a mouse stepping on a twig 75 feet away. Tuning and retuning, I would be an owl with ears twin radar dishes, eyes winged binoculars, A screech owl, because though baby screechers screech, the adults make the most enchanting, soft, whinnying howl. They go something like, I'd swallow meals whole, head first, tumbling soft and furry down my throat to the fiery plant that compacts all the inedibles into a hard pellet. Then twice a day, growing bloated and queasy, I'd stretch my neck up and forward, squeeze my stomach hard, and vomit a hairy, bony nugget. Oh, I'd vomit gently, delicately, all things considered, not thrash and shake the pellet free for five minutes like other inversely constipated owls. I'd eagerly coax these dainty pukes, not like the giant sea cucumber, that hurls up its whole stomach and tosses it literally at the missing feet of a wall-eyed fish. Then while the distracted fish feasts, steals away, a gutless wonder but alive, soon to grow another stomach. No, I'd sing of owl puke, the pellets that pave my days with dense nuggets that offer home to fungi, beetles, and other tramps. Would it sound nicer if I called it a fur ball? Well, I suppose. But a little cat first swallowed while grooming can't compare to a stony, wadded-up girdle of rodent, shrew, mole, gecko, and snake skeleton mixed with beetle crackle and songbird wings and oily fur as if for a jigsaw puzzle of a chimera, part mammal, part bird, part reptile, part insect, all tasty. Yes, all things considered, I would be an owl, with a ukulele call, 
a cowl of gray feathers cupping my feathered jowls, talons sharp and strong as ice hooks, parachute wings, a demi-suit of down, and ingenue eyes, voodoo eyes. I would be possessed of the ultimate head swivel, upside down and around back and front again and over the other shoulder, hunting among oaks and cottonwoods and old shady maples with broad wings outstretched and head tucked in tight, I'd flap hard and fast, rarely gliding or hovering, while listening and watching for scuffling prey in the leaf litter and lawns. I'd sing duets with my mate during the day and be calmed by a male chorus at night. When frightened, I'd blend in with tree trunk or foliage, stretching my frame long, closing my eyes to slits, tightening my feathers and standing still as old bark. In winter, I'd gobble hot meals of warm-blooded prey, and in summer, cool, crisp lizards, snakes, and bugs. And it goes without saying that I would marry for life, a long life of a score or two, lengthened by living in the suburbs and devouring the rat race. <laughs> yes, all things considered, I would be a bird with owl-bright eyes, creature comforts, and wide wings with down fur below to wrap my chicks in owl love. Some of you may be familiar uh, with my previous book, The Zookeeper's Wife, and wondering how on earth Dawn Light came to be a follow-up to this. Um, it made perfectly good sense to me because the same sensibility haunts each book. One reason that I chose to write The Zookeeper's Wife is that I found in Antonina Jabinska, the Warsaw zookeeper's wife during World War II, a kindred spirit. Especially when it came to her love of animals, her absolutely mystical relationship with animals, fascination with their senses and sensibilities, and the many behaviors that they share with humans, and also all the different ways in which humans show repeatedly that we are animals too. She savored the details of everyday life, even in the midst of great hardship, and found the world an exciting place to be, full of stories, mysteries, and surprises, and suffering too, which she tried to ease whenever she could. But ultimately, even that was part of the improbable adventure of being alive. Which reminds me of something that Amelia Earhart once said she crashed one of her planes and it was her bad fortune to be famous so there were tons of reporters on hand and they all saw this and she survived it but she staggered out bruised and obviously uh, worse the wear for it and they asked her about this and she just smiled and said it's all part of the adventure what makes dawn such a significant time of day for me because dawn, as I say, is part of the great parentheses of our lives, a symbol of rebirth and insight when the deepest avenues of life and matter become visible. Each day when I wake, I'm surprised and excited to be here again. Imagine, I think, you live on a planet in space, and millions of years ago, life evolved on this planet. Isn't that extraordinary? How strange. How wondrous. 
Dawn also offers another chance to start over, another chance to see the world with all its peoples and wonders as if for the first time. This sort of waking doesn't have to happen in the morning. But the actual dawn of the day is a natural wonder that I find glorious to behold, celebrated in unusual ways by many cultures and chock full of strangeness and drama. As a naturalist, I try to see both the forest and the trees. I love learning something new. I poke around a lot. I like a bit of adventure. And I try to leave lots of room for wonder. By peering at nature up close, I find it's possible to gain a little more perspective on life in general. But like Monet, all I really do is pay attention. In my career, I've had the luck of going to some exotic and astonishing landscapes in pursuit of the marvelous, from the Amazon to the Antarctic. But fortunately, the marvelous is a weed species. It grows everywhere, in backyards and in ditches and even on the lips of lobsters, as somebody discovered not very long ago. When I first learned about that life form, I thought, do lobsters have lips? But apparently they do, and there is one life form in this phylum, and it lives only on the lips of lobsters. Sometimes we need to be taught how and where to find wonder, but it's always there, waiting, full of magic. So the chapters in Dawn Light were written during a time of great uncertainty and suffering, and they were written in gusts of reverie at dawn, and belong to my quirky genre, natural history, in which I like to explore and celebrate things from as many different perspectives uh, as possible and keep learning. Among the things that I learned over that period that excited me were the, the 17 Japanese words for rain, and a few of the hundred names for rain in Hawaii, and that raindrops aren't, don't stay the same shape as they fall, but change hundreds of times a second, so that they're never the same. You know, um, when I first began to learn about that, I thought, this is so like human beings. You see somebody walking towards you across the street, and they seem coherent. <laughs> But in truth, they are a collection of processes temporarily holding each other in equilibrium. And they are changing the whole time, like falling rain. I learned why the World Health Organization labeled night shift work a carcinogen, which was really interesting. Um, why duels are scheduled for dawn. And I'm happy to tell you the short version of that, which is to make sure that the antagonists miss... <laughs> And the reason they miss, usually, or it was hoped they would miss, is because they were sleepy. Presumably, they had been up all night worrying. You know, it's foggy. It's misty. They're, they've got these pistols. They turn away from each other and pace away, and then they swivel around fast so they get a little disoriented. And with any luck, they miss. So, <laughs> duels are always at dawn. Anyway... Um, I love gathering marvels and sharing them in the process coming to a fresh gratitude for the diversity of creation and all the marvelous possibilities wrapped up in any moment. In this case, it's dawn, but it could be any moment. For me, the book is really a series of small astonishments and secular hallelujahs, a blend of the poetic, scientific, spiritual, and commonplace, something that allowed me to rediscover dawn. 
I hope when you read the book and set it down that you may see the world just a tiny bit differently. Maybe understand humans a little shade more and find it just a touch easier to appreciate some of nature's everyday miracles. Thank you. For more information regarding the artists featured here, as well as the KPFA speaker series, go to kpfa.org. Find out about upcoming events like Sebastian Younger, May 24th, in Berkeley, California. Tune in next week for another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book. This war... This damn war in Afghanistan, draining resources, draining all our souls. What's it like for the soldiers actually in it? What does that feel like? Sebastian Junger knows. The author of that ferocious book, The Perfect Storm, Junger just spent 15 months with a single U.S. platoon in eastern Afghanistan. He wrote War, as soldiers really live it. KPFA takes pride in presenting him in Berkeley, May 24th, a Monday evening, 7.30, at First Congregational Church, Channing, at Dana. There is wheelchair access and free parking. Advanced tickets for this KPFA benefit are a scant $10 at independent bookstores or through brownpapertickets.com. Full info on the kpfa.org website. Sebastian Junger, May 24th. Three thirty here in KPFA ninety four point one in Berkeley, eighty nine point three KPFB in Berkeley.